So, John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him on the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. 
This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two then wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Good afternoon. I'm Alan too. It's the Alan Show today. Um, there's a lot in that passage, and obviously I can't address every little thing, but I'll uh, try to pick out some main points for us today. Um, after the sermon 
there's a Q&A opportunity, and um, going to be chasing that. Um, so if you've got any questions, if they come to mind during the service, if you wish, you can text them through to Rob or you can sit on them and uh, ask them afterwards. Um, I'm just going to quickly work my way through the passage and look at this unfolding drama. It's interesting to look at how the power shifts as we go through the, through the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And then uh, we're going to have a look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And John's going to use a lot of the, scripture there to show how God is in control and at work, working his purposes out. Uh, and he shows that through the uh, proving of Old Testament prophecies. Um, there's three main players we'll look at, particularly in the trial. We have Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor of Judea. That is effectively, he is the highest court in the land. Um, so Pilate should be in control of everything here but he finds himself less and less in control um, and he gets outmaneuvered by the Jews. The Jews think they've had a big win. They think they're in control, um, but they're deluded. And Jesus, who actually seems pretty passive through all this and looks a bit like a powerless victim, but actually he is the one in total control and he has been for thousands of years and he will be forever. Um, yeah, and finally, we're going to have a look at the burial of Jesus and the significance of that. I've only got two application points at the end, um, but really like us to embrace them today, and that is to trust in the power of the gospel, the power of God's word, and also the power of a Christian witness. But a bit of context first. Last week, Rob took us through the trial of Jesus, and that's going to continue into our chapter 19 today. But Pilate, uh, the Jews arrested Jesus, they've run him through their courts, they've brought him to Pilate, again the highest court in the land. Um, Pilate has heard the charges, he's heard the evidence, he's cross-examined Jesus and he's given his verdict, innocent. Now what I want you to do, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. I know you're not the son of God, but imagine you're in, a dock, in the dock in a court of law, on trial for your life, and you hear the verdict, no basis for charge, innocent. You're beauty. Um, you'd have to be happy with that. And then look at the first verse of our chapter today. Pilate had Jesus flogged. Yeah, what? Why am I being flogged? I've just been found innocent. Is, is that now a crime? Now at this point, Today you would expect the world-famous human rights barrister Geoffrey Robinson to give a blistering attack on the failure of the judicial system here. Human rights activists would be up in arms. Social justice warriors would be storming the gates. But here in our passage, we have no dissenting voices. Where is the outcry? This, this is a travesty of justice. Now there's a real danger that as we read scripture and read things like this, we can sanitize it. Unknowingly, we can do that. Let's not do that here. This is an enormous injustice. And yet, amazingly, no one seems to care. I'm just, I've just started reading a book called Dominion, and it's written by a scholar, a, a well-known English historian named Tom Holland, not of Spider-Man fame, another Tom Holland, but he specialises, his speciality is ancient history before Jesus. He's a, a BC history specialist. Um, 
And that study of BC history has led him to radically change his position on Christianity. He was a liberal agnostic. He's come through study of, of history to be a, a believer that Jesus is the Son of God and he rose from the dead. But what he found over many years of study was just how different the pre-Christian world was. It wasn't just that it was cruel and callous, uh, but people were indifferent to the suffering of the weak and poor. That Even worse, they celebrated it. He gives many examples. One example he gives, he studied Julius Caesar, and in 58 BC, Julius Caesar invaded Gaul and conquered it. He then went about to subjugate the country. He enslaved a million of the people, Gauls, France, and a bit of Spain, I think, and he sent a million off into slavery. And uh, then, just to quell any dissent or rebellion, he went around the, the whole country and slaughtered about a million common people. Now, it is thought that could be an exaggeration because he was sending reports back to Rome of the numbers of men, women and children he was killing and that was making him wildly popular in Rome. Um, and Tom Holland found that repeated over and over again in that pre-Jesus era, that the lives of ordinary people had no value and not only were their deaths unmourned, they were actually celebrated. He found the same degenerate attitude existed towards sex, uh, morality, corruption. Now, I know all those things still go on today, but society, particularly Christian Western society, recognises them as evils. And this, this historian found that was not the case before Christ. He realised that today's Western culture is profoundly changed by Christianity. And he put it this way in the book, he said, it's, it's a bit like we're goldfish living in a bowl and the water we swim around in is Christianity and it is so pervasive and so permeating that we don't even know it. So with that in mind, we'll have a look at these chapters uh, that have changed the world. But first, let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we just come before you thanking you this... Uh, for, for recording this for us, to know this climactic point in history and to rejoice in the way it has changed the world. Just pray you drive that home to us today, just how life-changing the gospel is and to know the power of a Christian witness that uh, is so amazing in the world today and give you the glory for that. So pray that in Jesus' name. So, okay, in the previous chapter... Pilate actually tried to have Jesus released, uh, but the Jews demanded that he released a criminal named Barabbas instead. And as unfair as this flogging sounds, and it is very unfair, it's actually another attempt by Pilate to, to appease the Jews and have Jesus released. So Jesus is flogged, he's crowned with thorns, and Pilate brings him out. He would have been a pathetic figure. Here's this guy covered in blood, beaten, and he brings him out and he puts him there and he says, here is the man. Clearly, it's just a man. He's not a king. He's of no threat to anyone. He's hoping the Jews will be happy with that. It completely fails. The Jews are relentless and they cry, crucify. But Pilate sticks to his guns. 
Um, he declares again a couple more times, I find no basis for a charge. If you want him dead, you crucify him. But they, they, they stick to theirs too. And they, um, they're now forced to go a step further, the Jews, and fully declare why they want him killed, which they've been a bit deceitful about up till now. Um, so they say the reason we want him killed is we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, Jesus, through his ministry, has many times demonstrated and made claims that he is God, and the Jews here know that. This is ironic. Their whole nation, its genesis, its start, its legal system, its temple, its sacrificial system, their core identity revolves and centres in a relationship with Yahweh, God. Why have they not examined Jesus' claims to be God rather than just seek to kill him? Their own scriptures have lots of prophecies about this coming Messiah and they should be checking those out, not least of which are those that say the Messiah will be God himself, like Isaiah 9 that says a child will come out of Galilee who will be everlasting Father, mighty God. They can look at the miracles, at least it's only two weeks ago that Jesus raised the guy from the dead. But they, they just ignore this. They want him dead. It doesn't say it here, but in the other Gospels, it says Pilate knew it was out of jealousy that the Jews wanted Jesus killed, which is just amazing. But this revelation from the Jews that Jesus claimed to be the son of God has a big effect on Pilate. Like all Romans, he has an understanding of Roman gods and sons of gods. And he's now more afraid. It's not just now he's being asked to kill an innocent man. He's being asked to kill a divine being. Now, how much he understands about who Jesus is, really, uh, we don't know. But this statement by the Jews makes Pilate ask some more. He takes Jesus back into the palace to talk to him privately, and he asks him, where do you come from? Now, Pilate's not interested in what village in Judea Jesus is from. He's, he, this has come from that, that statement of his divinity, uh, his claimed divinity, and he's asking him about his divine origin. He's asking, are you the son of God? And Jesus doesn't answer him, no answer. So Pilate feels the need to remind Jesus that he has the power to, to kill him or set him free, which... Again, is an ironic moment in the story. Here we have the eternal God who created the universe at the power of his word being told by one of his creations it has power over him. It's like one of those movies where the robot takes over and attacks the, its creators. Um, but Jesus, and Jesus reminds Pilate of that straight away. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. See, Jesus doesn't exonerate Pilate here. Pilate's clearly guilty of sin, but the lesser sin. The greater sin is by those who handed Jesus over. And we know from verse 38 of the previous chapter, Jesus was handed over to Pilate by his own people, the Jews and their chief priests. And they are the ones guilty of the greater sin. There's a really interesting dynamic there happening. Pilate, Pilate is, is doing exactly what God has planned will happen. This is all according to God's will and purpose. Yet Pilate is guilty of sin. That's a question I've grappled with a lot. 
Can God, God can use the actions of sinful men to achieve his good purposes, yet that does not remove or negate the sin of those people. They are still held accountable. And that's really clear from Jesus here. So after this interchange between Pilate and Jesus, we're told in verse 12, Pilate from then on was committed to trying to set Jesus free. And the Jews are forced to play, play their trump card. They're going to coerce Pilate into, this, into crucifying Jesus. So verse 12, they say to, to Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. See, the Jews have just moved the goalposts here. It's not them against Pilate anymore. It's Pilate in opposition to Caesar, Tiberius. And this strategy works. Such a report to Caesar could have had serious consequences for Pilate. Tiberius is a dangerous man to get on the wrong side of. So Pilate is forced into doing what he knows is the wrong thing to do, but out of personal self-interest and safety, he now gives in to the, Jew, to the Jews. There's been a real shift in priorities there. The innocent, the innocent man Pilate now wants to uh, save is himself, not Jesus. But he's angry. Pilate knows what's going on. This is a dead set threat. He knows that. He's been manipulated here. He's been put in a position by the Jews. And even though they have won, he does everything now he can to annoy them. He keeps referring to Jesus as their king just to rub their noses a bit. So from verse 14, Pilate says, Here is your king. And the Jews shout, Crucify him, take him away, take him away. Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And they say, We have no king but Caesar. And then it says, Finally, after baiting them for a while, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. But there's a real sad irony in there too. In that statement by the chief priests, we have no king but Caesar. Now that's, that's not true. That's a false claim by them. And within a few years, they're going to rebel against Rome. What they are really doing is reinforcing their threat to Pilate. They're saying, we're Lord of Caesar, you better be too. Just to reinforce their hold and threat over Pilate. But what that statement really shows is their spiritual condition. As faithful Jews, their ultimate ruler should have been God himself. And here they are tragically saying, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, but he hasn't finished taunting them. He has a sign prepared and fastened above the cross, which says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And just to make it sure, sure it stands out like a neon flashing line, he has it written three times in three different languages. And that works. That, that does get up the nose of the chief priests. And they go to him. They want the sign changed. Pilate says, what I've written, I've I have written. In other words, no way. That stays. Lumpen. So I'll move on into the next several verses. We do have a repeated theme. Liam tells us when something's repeated several times, you should address it. It's, it, it's there for a reason. And in verses 24, 28 and 36, John says, This happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. He's saying this for a reason. He's letting us know that God is in control here. And all this is happening perfectly in minute detail as, as God wants it to. I'm not going to deal with so much in there, so many little things that are from the Old Testament, but I'm just going to deal with three. 
Uh, there's the prophecy that Jesus' clothes are going to be divided amongst the soldiers. That's from Psalm 22. Um, now, that psalm, up until that very day, would have sounded a little bit contradictory. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my clothes. So which one is it? Well, we, we can see from the passage that both are true. They did both. And that cryptic prophecy is crystal clear and comes true. Second, there's the wine vinegar given to Jesus that fulfills a prophecy in, in uh, Psalm 69. But the last one I want to look at, and the really interesting one to me because of the context, was they pierced Jesus' side. They pierced his side to make sure he, he was dead. Now, that prophecy's in the Old Testament a couple of times. It's in Psalm 22 where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. But the one I want to look at is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And this is what it says. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Doesn't that just drip of messianic prophecy about Jesus? Verse 1 of that chapter 12 of Zechariah tells us it's God speaking here. God is speaking. It says, this is the word of the Lord. And listen to the prophecy again. Remember again, this is God speaking. You notice this. He says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and then they will mourn for him. Here is a prophecy state. They are going to crucify God himself and a third him. So in crucifying Jesus, they're fulfilling one of the very prophecies that prove Jesus is both God and man, the Messiah. And Jesus' claims to be God are fulfilled. But sticking there, we go on in Zechariah just a few verses later of wonderful significance and enormous comfort to, to us today. It says this, On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. As that spear went in, as the lifeblood of Jesus poured out, the door is opened for new life to all who will come to him to be forgiven and cleansed and made right with God forever. Uh, there is a, another section there about Jesus assigning the care of his mother to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Most commentators think that is John himself. Uh, now, there's lots of theories about what, why this is there and what's going on, and I'm not going to go into them all. But what it does say, that even in the midst of suffering and agonising death, Jesus is concerned for someone other than himself. And perhaps that's just another example of his divine nature. And the very reason he's on the cross is for others, for you and I, to set us free from the burden of sin and bring us into a relationship with him forever. Now, the last part of our passage has the burial of Jesus. Two men of high standing in the Jewish community come, oh, one of them goes, or one's the spokesman anyway, and asks for Jesus' body. Now, these two men are followers of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Uh, well, that's, and Nic well, that's Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus used to visit him at night for the same reason. Clearly, he didn't want people to know. Um, 
Yet at this very moment, when the 12 apostles have fled, all Jesus' disciples have gone into hiding, these two suddenly come out and make this audacious move. They, they get the body and they put it in an empty tomb. And that creates a whole new dilemma for the Jews. Um, Jesus has claimed that he will rise from the dead in three days. Now, the Jews would have assumed, like all other criminals, Jesus' body would have been thrown into a common grave with the others. And I, I hope you haven't got any sensitive stomach, but birds of prey and dogs would have got rid of the body very quickly. Um, but in a tomb, there's a body. And yes, it can be produced to prove his death, but it can disappear to prove his risen. See, God's plans just cannot be thwarted. And you've got to ask, why would these two men who have kept their, their relationship, their trust in Jesus secret because of fear, chose, choose this moment to come out into the open? They should have been even more afraid. Like, people are getting killed here. Jesus has been killed brutally. The Jews have had a great win. But God has moved them to do that. God is in control. And that's really the essence of our passage and our understanding of it, a God who is in control. The points of application are really more points of encouragement. In our passage, John gives great emphasis on the fulfilment of Scripture. We need to know that God's Word, the Bible, that it has power, that it is truth, and it has power to change us, change the church, to change the world. And the second point is the power of a Christian witness. Listen to what John says about the witness, witnessing of Jesus' side being pierced from verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. We are today's witnesses for Jesus. You've had the truth revealed to you. We need to have confidence in the power of God's word and in the power of a testimony. Now, at the start of this message, I talked to you about a book I'm reading at the moment, how the writer, a noted historian, became convinced of the truth of the gospel when he realised it was a revelation to him, the impact and change that that gospel has had on the world. He recognised the gospel of Jesus has exerted this extraordinary changing effect over the last 2,000 years, and he accepted that Jesus must be the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. It must be true to have this sort of power that didn't exist before. Wouldn't it be tragic for you and me if we went through our Christian lives not knowing the power of the gospel that lives in us, the power of Jesus? You know, that power is still going on and we're, you are a part of it. This church is a part of it. When you make decisions based on Jesus' word with Jesus as Lord, not doing what the world say, says to do, that has an impact. When you pray, there is an impact. You may never see it, but prayers are powerful. When we meet together around God's word and encourage each other and worship Jesus, there is an impact far beyond these walls. There is a power at work that is much greater than you and me, but is working in us to God's glory. Despite bad things happening, that may be happening all around us, we need to cling to God's word and be his witnesses. 
2,000 years ago, the disciples would have thought, Poof, this is a disaster. What a tragedy. Jesus is dead. Little did they know for thousands of years that Friday would be celebrated as Good Friday. We don't want to look around us at things that look bad or difficult and feel that God is ineffectual here or powerless. It's often in those situations as we, we stand up and trust in him that he does amazing things. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus could easily have looked, have looked at what had happened that day and decided, I think discretion is the better part of valour. Let's stay home that day Jesus died. But they didn't. They chose that most dangerous of moments to go public and courageously ask for Jesus' body. And God used that to provide the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. You may look at the state of society. You may look at the, the perils in the international world today. Take heart. God is in control. He's working all things for our good and his glory. And our eternal security in Christ is secure. He not only died in our place, he rose from the dead. He now reigns in power. Power that now lives in you. You're the salt and light of Christ to the world. They're not my words. They're the words of Jesus. Don't look around at the world and be discouraged. Look up. All power and authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Trust in him. His word, his power, depend on him as we live for him. You know, all of us historically have a very short amount of time left to live in compared to the eons of history. Let's use it to his glory. Trust in his word. Step out in his power. Your witness can have an impact you may never see and cannot imagine. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word here. Thank you for the wonderful encouragements even just for showing us how, how accurate your words are, how it can't be voided, you're in control. It's so difficult at times in the world as we look around us and we see Christianity attacked and ridiculed, but Lord, you're a powerful God and you march on. And one day you'll rescue us. We, we have an eternity secure in you. Help us in, in that knowledge to use what time we have to your glory. Help us, equip us, Lord, empower us to trust in you, to live holy lives. Give us opportunities to live out and declare our faith in Christ. To you be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, questions after the next song, is that right? Yes. Okay, question time. Get them ready. Well, you don't have to ask a question. <laughs> I don't know if Rob had any on his phone. Um, well, the, it says the disciple who Jesus loved. Most commentators think that's John. Um, he's, he has no problem naming lots of other people, but when he gets to that one individual he always says that he uses that phrase rather than it's thought out of humility he doesn't say his own name but there are other theories out there but I think that's probably the best one one comment did come through uh, that Tom Holland is not in fact a Christian he's an atheist uh, so just for clarification still yeah but he would he classifies himself as a 
moral Christian. So he likes the morals, but he's not converted. Oh, I haven't got that so, out of his book yet. I'm up to chapter three. And I'm, the impression I get is so spoiler: started. if you're going to read it, doesn't become a Christian oh, there you yet. Go. Yet. Okay. Thanks, Rob. I'll sit down.